Revelation chapter 10. The plan for tonight is to consider the whole chapter. Once again, it's only 11 verses this time. And I'm not trying to make a habit of taking a chapter at a time. I know that we did that the last time with chapter 9. But um, it's once again, it seems necessary to do so. Like It'll make the most sense if we take the whole chapter in, in one piece. I don't want to spend a, lot of, a long time going over what we've already covered in this book, but I should say a few things just so the context is clear and because it's been a while since we've been in this book together because of my vacation and then my foot injury. So catching us up briefly, we, we find ourselves at a change in the vision that uh, the Apostle John is getting. And it's a change, but at the same time, it's something familiar. If you remember, John is in the process of receiving the second set of judgments that come upon the earth all throughout the time between Jesus' first and second coming. In other words, the things described here that we've been reading impact Christians during John's day, and they impact Christians and the world in our day as well. It's, It's still very relevant. The first set of judgments were the seal judgments, and they revealed some of the ways that the church would be persecuted in this age. And the second set of judgments, which are the trumpet judgments, are more about the types of trials and tribulations that will come upon the unbelieving world in general for God's purposes and for his plan of building and sanctifying his kingdom. And this whole period of time, God is preparing for the second coming of Christ and the consummation of the kingdom, the the completion of the kingdom, the realization of it in its fullness. It was inaugurated at his first coming, the first coming of Christ, and it will be consummated, brought to its fullness when he comes again. And the church now, those people who are being saved, who are trusting and resting in Christ for salvation, they are, as it were, on their way to the promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. And we're in this wilderness period now, just like ancient Israel was for 40 years on the way to Canaan, but God is with us in an even more unique and personal way because everyone who is considered his people, in other words, those who are truly saved, he is sanctifying and growing us in the truth. And that's the same for everyone that's in the new covenant, which means that we have it much better than ancient Israel did in the old covenant. Because in the old covenant for ancient Israel, not everyone knew God like that. Um, Not everyone was filled with his spirit. And so when we think of these judgments that John is describing, which take place all throughout this age according to God's will, even the demonic activity that takes place, we shouldn't think that things are out of hand. But we should think that God is perfectly in control. And he's using these things for the salvation of his people. When we see these kind of things that are happening in this world, disasters, wars, the celebration of immorality, uh, it's it's appropriate to lament them, to to have remorse over them and to pray for mercy from God and that they would come to an end. But at the same time, we should remember that God is in control of these things and he's using them. And the church is being led by God through the great tribulation by God himself. And now, after considering the fifth and sixth trumpet judgments in chapter 9, which were both intense, if you remember, it was five or six weeks ago, um, so intense, though, in fact, that the last three trumpet judgments are called woes. And we now come to a time of encouragement here in chapter 10. And so just like between the sixth and seventh seals, there's what we called an interlude. There's one again now between the sixth and seventh trumpet. And the interlude spans chapter 10. It goes into chapter 11 as well. But we're only going to consider chapter 10 tonight. So let's read Revelation chapter 10. And then we'll pray, asking God to bless our time in his word. 
So the reading of God's word, beginning at verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea, and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But that in the days of the trumpet called to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who was standing on the sea of the land. And so I went to the angel and told him, Give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for this time to be in your word and for this vision that you gave John at, at this time to be what it is, Lord, um, an encouragement. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us understand, knowing that so many come to this book confused by the imagery and the symbols. But we pray, Lord, that you would make us to have a clear understanding of what your will is in this revelation of Jesus Christ that you have given to us. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys. So in the interlude, which follows the sixth trumpet judgment, there are actually two scenes describing the church on the earth during the Great Tribulation. Remember, the Great Tribulation we were saying last time is, is this time span in between Jesus' first and second coming. It's the whole thing, and there's varying degrees of tribulation throughout it, with it escalating more towards the end. But the whole period is rightly called the Great Tribulation. The same struggles that we've seen in the letters to the seven churches are also described in Revelation 10 and 11. And this time, though, it's in terms of the church's witness to the world during the present age. So like I was saying, tonight we're only considering the vision in Revelation 10 and John's vision of an angel with a little scroll or a little book. Now, to make sense of the change of subjects beginning in Revelation 10.1, we need to go back to the opening verse of the book in Revelation 1.1. There's a correlation here that we need to remember. So you could turn over there and see what it says, but it says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, meaning John, to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. And so what this means in light of chapter 10 is that through the actions of the angel who now appears to John, John's commission as the prophet to whom this full revelation from Jesus Christ now comes is coming to a sense of completeness. These things that must soon take place, they've been described in a, in a sense of a fullness as to what is happening in this age. Everything in generality has been revealed to him, although there's obviously 11 more chapters in this book. 
Okay, but again, they're, they're hitting on the same sorts and kinds of things. But now the scroll that was sealed is opened up to him when it wasn't there you know, at the beginning of Revelation chapter 1. In light of this fact, the entire section of Revelation here that we're dealing with has allusions back to Daniel chapter um, 10, verse 5 through 6 especially, and Ezekiel chapter 2 and 3. And so John is now commissioned again. He's called again to bring the bitter and sweet words, and more about that soon, of the Lord to, the, to God's people. And this time, the mystery of God's decree will be revealed in respect to the final judgment in light of what Christ has accomplished. Christ is the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world even, right? And so it's going to be in light of what Jesus has done. And so it's John who will now reveal that which was mysterious to the Old Testament prophets, such as Daniel and Ezekiel. And John can do so now at this time precisely because Christ has come and redeemed his people with his precious blood. He's, he's conquered death and the grave. And he's, he's earned the keys to death and the grave. And he's exalted in heaven. He's reigning in his place as Lord of the church. And remember, and, and Lord of all, and remember, he's the lamb who was slain, who alone was worthy to open that scroll. And so in verse 1 of Revelation 10, John describes what he sees. This is what he typically does, right? He says, I saw, I saw again. This time it begins, then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. So different than the angels from the seven trumpets, right? Yeah? Um, in verse 4, it says, um, do not write it down, right? Yeah. So then why did he end up writing it down? For we'll get there in a second. He doesn't write down the specific judgment of those thunders, yeah. so we'll get there in just a moment. Uh, you're, a little, you're a little bit ahead of me. So we're still thinking verse 1 right now. John sees an, another mighty angel begin. So I'm trying to say this is not the seven angels with the seven trumpets. This is another mighty angel. This is an interlude. This is different. This angel doesn't have with him a trumpet like the other seven did that we read in chapters eight and nine. And so he says that um, this angel is robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head and his face was like the sun and his legs were like pillars of fire. Now, does that remind you of anything? You, it's been a while since we were there. I actually had it the passage read for the call to worship on this past Sunday. But it sounds very much like the description of the glorious Christ that we read in Revelation 1. In Revelation 1, 10 through 20, we have this description of the exalted Christ that is fantastic. It's in this way that is supposed to teach us what he's like, not exactly what he looks like, but some of those very same things were said of Christ. And the reality that this angel is described that way has caused quite a bit of debate about who this angel is. Some people understand this angel as Christ himself, especially the older commentators, the ones that I greatly respect and value even, like Matthew Henry and John Gill, both who have been very helpful in preparing and studying John's apocalypse, whereas others, including most Reformed commentators today, believe the angel is a messenger of Christ who reflects his master's glory. And so in Revelation 5, 2, John's already spoken of a mighty angel who asked the question that caused John so much anguish. Remember, he starts weeping when this angel um, then says, who is, who is worthy to open the scroll? Remember that? And then they point out, oh, the elders point out that, oh, there's the lamb slain standing. And then also, um, thinking about this angel, we might be reminded of Daniel chapter 10, 5 through 6. The prophet Daniel describes an angel that he sees. And so listen to this. 
He says, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl. His face was like the appearance of lightning. His eyes like flaming torches. His arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. And the sound of his words was like the sound of a multitude. Now, that description of this unknown being, this angelic being that's also caused confusion in Daniel chapter 10 sounds very much like the being described in Revelation chapter 10. And if we consider the fact that the same angelic being later tells Daniel that the prince of Persia prevented him from successfully completing his mission until he was assisted by Michael the archangel, which is again uh, Daniel 10, 12 through 14. Excuse me, the angel description is Daniel 5. Daniel 10 is where we learn about him not being able to advance because in Persia and needing the help of Michael. Um, it becomes clear then that the angel in Daniel 10 is not Christ, but an angelic messenger closely associated with Yahweh. And that helps us think about the angel in Revelation 10 as well, that it's also not Christ. And that's made more clear in verse 6 and 8 as well as this angel makes an oath and then takes orders from a voice in heaven, which are clues that I think would lend me to believe that the angel is not Christ, but I would side with people like Howard uh, Hendricks and other modern commentators who say that, um, or William Hendrickson, I mean, and other modern commentators who say that it's not actually Christ, but it's an angel closely associated with Christ and, and the rest of the Godhead. He serves in a close capacity to Yahweh. According to John's testimony in verse 2, the angel has a little open scroll in his hand. This little scroll, or more literally a book, would seem to be the same one that was previously opened by the Lamb, who is Jesus in Revelation 5, who then proceeded to open its seven seals. And verse 2 goes on to say that the angel set his right foot on the land and his left, or his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Verse 3 says he called out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. And the reference to the sea and the land most likely refers to the complete scope of God's sovereignty over the world. Bless you. That the visions that John is receiving are not just about some localized area, such as Israel in the Old Covenant, but the people of God in the New Covenant in this age are spread across the whole world. And so this angel is standing with one foot on the land and the sea, symbolizing the whole world and God's plan in it. And then the voice that of a lion echoes the earlier testimony of the prophet Amos in Amos chapter 3. In Amos chapter 3, uh, verse 7 and 8, we read, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Which is what this angel is doing. And so by giving John the scroll or the book, which has been unsealed, God is revealing to John his sovereign purposes for the present age. That promise in Revelation 1 is, is now here before John. God's sovereign purposes that were hidden, which were this mystery, which was this truth that had yet to be revealed, is now being revealed. And so having revealed these purposes to John, John is like, how can I not prophesy? That is, how can John not proclaim to God's people the things that the angel is now revealing to him? It's already been happening since chapter 5, but it's explicit now. The seals have been opened by the lamb slain who is living. But while John must proclaim certain things to God's people, other things are to remain sealed, which seems to be counterintuitive, which is what Ethan was bringing up. Um, so Revelation 10.4. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up 
what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. It's interesting. Now, the book in the angel's hand is open, implying that it's to be read, implying that it's to be known, uh, symbolizing the openness of the vision. But now we're told that John has to hide some of it still. So at first glance, it's confusing that God would reveal this, this vision and the scroll to his prophet John and then forbid him from proclaiming everything in it. But there's a, a larger principle here. As a general rule, we confess with the scriptures what they say in Deuteronomy 29. The secret things belong to the Lord. Indeed, the secret things are his. But his prophets must reveal only what God commands them to reveal. But there's probably something else going on here as well. The sealing of the seven thunders which are not to be written down. What, what it's doing, what, what, what has been done in communicating these thunders and then saying, no, don't communicate them, don't, don't pass them on, is it's showing us the merciful hand of God in light of these judgments that are coming to an end with the seventh <coughs> trumpet, just like they did with the seventh seal. God is not, in other words, these judgments, these things are taking place on the earth that are described in the seven seals, the seven judgments or trumpets and then the seven bowls it's not as if god is just doing these things because he can he's he's even withholding some of them back from being worse that's what's being communicated in sealing up these seven um these seven other uh shouts these seven thunders here in chapter 10 he's he's withholding things back from becoming worse than they need to be he's using what's needed to accomplish his ends the horrors depicted in the fifth and the sixth trumpet judgments brought about by human rebellion, the worship of demons, and the refusal of men and women to reject the works of their hands so they might seek the righteousness of Christ, it could be worse. As bad as we look at this world right now and we think of how messed up it is, it could be worse. But God's not prolonging judgment for the sake of judgment. He has his end in mind the parousia, the second coming of Christ and the consummation of his kingdom. And so he announces these seven thunders only to say no, to show his mercifulness, to show that he's not letting out judgment just indiscriminately, but everything's happening according to his plan. Uh, we see this elsewhere in the New Testament that with the seventh trumpet, the last trumpet, it's all going to come to an end, uh, just like with the seventh seal and eventually the seventh bowl as well. But we see it in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-two where Paul speaks of the last trumpet as the herald to the second coming of Jesus Christ and the resurrection. And the angel does something to move the vision along, something surprising at this point. He makes an oath. Nothing wrong with making an oath, a vow that is biblical and will be kept. But according to verse 5 and 7, he says, The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants by the prophets. So the seven thunders will be sealed and not written down, and there will be no delay before judgment comes. When the seventh trumpet sounds, that's it, in other words. There will be no more time to repent, no more chances for unbelievers to renounce their own unrighteousness or, or even righteousness. A judgment day will come, just like with the seventh seal. So obviously, if we're thinking of these seal judgments and these trumpet judgments and these bold judgments, we haven't experienced the seventh seal or the seventh trumpet or the seventh bowl. Because remember, when that happens, that's the end of this age as when Christ comes back. So the angel has sworn to it now. 
and all the mysteries of God's eternal decree will finally be unfolded in human history when God reveals things at his time. Everything revealed in type and shadow to the prophets of old will be accomplished. God will punish all evildoers. He'll destroy the devil and all of his minions. He'll vindicate and reward his people. And he'll <laughs> usher in the glories of the age to come. And that will all be explained in more detail later, especially chapters 17 uh, through the end in Revelation 21. And this, of course, this message coming now to imagine yourself having received this letter, if you're one of those seven churches that initially received it. And then you've just read about these judgments, and especially the fifth and sixth trumpet judgment, which was about this demonic activity and the struggles the church was going through. And now you come to chapter 10. This would be a great encouragement to those Christians who were suffering in the first century. And it's equally comforting to us. Everything, will, what, what he's saying in all of this is that everything will turn out in the end just as God has, has promised. There will be no cosmic surprises. This interlude is given to us in the midst of some heavy things for our comfort because God loves his church. But the scene in Revelation 10 ends with a dramatic turn of events, really, which reminds us of God's dealings with some of the prophets in the time of the Old Covenant. In verse 8, John informs us that the voice that he had heard from heaven spoke to him again. Okay, so now this is not the angel speaking. This is, this is God. Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. And of course, you know, John does that. He, he could, how could he say no? And so we read that John says, I went to the angel and I told him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat. I will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. Verse 10, and I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. Verse 11, John says, and I was, you must, he says, and I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. So this scene is, is so similar to Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel's commissioning in the open, opening chapters of his prophecy, which we, if we had more time, maybe we could look at that, but maybe look at it um, at yourself in your own time for study and reflecting on what we've been talking about tonight. But Ezekiel chapter 2 uh, through 311. It's very similar to what is happening with John right now. Ezekiel is commanded to prophesy against the people of Israel after they had been rebelling against God's word. He was told to take the scroll there in Ezekiel chapter 2 and to eat it, uh, symbolizing the internalizing of God's word to his people so that he might proclaim the word of blessing and curse within the old covenant as his office in, as one of God's prophets. The eating of the scroll, which the prophet said was sweet as honey back in Ezekiel, also involved the proclamation or the declaring of the bitter words of lament, warning, and woe. Uh, the symbolism seen in the sweetness of the scroll and the words of blessing and cursing it contained is that Ezekiel was commanded to preach the blessings and the curses of the covenant to God's covenant people, Israel, which also at the same time, which was the old covenant, right? But at the same time, pointed to truths about blessing that is revealed in the new covenant and in the gospel. And so much the same thing holds true here for John as well in Revelation 10. 
Only the difference being that John is preaching from the vantage point of fulfillment. Since Christ has already now come and revealed himself to be worthy to open the scroll. Since Christ has, in fact, died for our sins and fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. How, in Romans 10, how beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim the good news. And then also, likewise, how sweet is the message in their mouth, in other words. But the bittersweet message found in the scroll that John is to eat, that is proclaimed to all the nations. And that means that John's mission is extended from the mission given earlier to Ezekiel. Remember, again, in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, they were types and shadows of realities in the New Covenant in the New Testament. And so whereas Ezekiel's scroll that he ate was localized for Israel, John's is worldwide. He, he's, he's, he's speaking, he's to deliver this truth, this mission uh, to the whole world. Ezekiel was to preach to God's disobedient covenant people. John, on the other hand, is called to preach to the nations, to their kings. And, every, and the, re, the reality about that that we should remember is that those people described the nations and the kings in the book of Revelation are almost always depicted as being allied with the beast or at least doing his bidding. And so we also are supposed to deliver this message that John has because we've been given this message through John. And we know that this is true because John is to preach this bittersweet message to all kinds of people reading verse 11 in many different languages, which of course is a picture of the missionary endeavor of the church. Languages, nations, and kings. As in the case of Ezekiel, the scroll is to be eaten by John, and it tastes sweet at first, but it soon turns, turns bitter in his stomach. Why is that? At first it's sweet, but then it's bitter after it's down in his stomach. There are two lines of explanation we need to be thinking about here. The first we've already discussed, which is the message that John is called to internalize and to preach, is bittersweet in nature. That is the message that John and which he's given and which he's supposed to pass on to churches contains both word of blessing, the sweetness of the gospel, and a word which turns bitter, the demands of the law and the sanctions which result when God's law is broken. And since the message given by the angel to John specifically so that he might, excuse me, specifically so that it might be revealed to God's people, the application for us becomes very clear. While the seal and trumpet judgments occur across the earth during the last days, this time period that we are in, and as they intensify, even as we get closer to the return of Christ, the church is to be about the business of proclaiming the law and the gospel. That's our job. It's not primarily to change the culture. That's not our job. That might be an effect of what our job is, but changing the culture isn't primarily our job. Our job is to proclaim this bittersweet message in all of its fullness. It's not, our job is not to usher in the kingdom. That's Christ's work. Our part is to share in it by preaching the gospel, to rightly divide law and gospel, to show the world the sweetness of the gospel. And what is our responsibility and privilege in light of God's plan of redemption? Do you ever think about that? As a, as a Christian, do you understand that you have been commissioned to take part in it? Being a Christian 
is no less than glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. Seeking to live your, an ordinary life of faithfulness and repentance in response to God's saving work in your life. But then also, it's more than that too. We have a divinely appointed mission to take the gospel to the nations. In other words, it's the Great Commission. Verse 11 in Revelation 10 is essentially a restatement of the Great Commission in Matthew 28. That we're to proclaim this bittersweet word of law and gospel to everyone within our sphere and influence. It's very likely that not a single one of us in this room is called to go to a different nation and to, sh- and to be a missionary and share the gospel. Maybe. Maybe God is going to do that. He very well might, and he could. But with our own sphere of influence, we still are to fulfill that role. And we even engage in taking to the nations by supporting people like Trevor, who's working through Heart Cry Missionary in Papua, right? So we even have part to play in it through that way. This um, divine appointment that we have is not just reserved for elders and pastors. It's for everyone who bears the name of Christ. And it's one of our primary weapons against Satan, the beast, the harlot, and all those who serve them in this age. Do, do you not like the wickedness that exists in this world? I mean, do you, do you lament uh, the evil things that we have to see and deal with? Well, our hands aren't tied, friends. We have the gospel. That's what we should do. We tell people of the law of God and then the riches of Christ's grace and forgiveness that are, that are available in the gospel. The best way to expose the, worst, the works of the devil and frustrate his purposes is with the light of truth. And our culture today, we have many opportunities to shine the light of truth upon the darkness of this world's systems. But John's message is bittersweet in another way, a second way. John must reveal God's word to the churches that the wrath of God is indeed coming upon the whole world through a cyclical series of judgments which culminate with the return of Christ. And although God's people are sealed with the name of Christ and protected from his wrath, as well as from those demonic forces unleashed from the abyss by the fallen angel, which we'll talk about that, and we were talking about some of it last time in chapter 9, in light of those things, At times, Christians will still face the satanically empowered beast who wages war upon the saints. Christians suffer persecution in this age. Christians are martyred in this age. Christians must be on guard for the deceptive and alluring ways of the harlot of Revelation 17 who seeks to entice Christians away from their Lord. And plus, we have to worry about our own flesh that is with us everywhere that still wants to live in a way that's unpleasing to the Lord. And as we've seen... In addition to proclaiming the bittersweet word of the law and gospel, God has reminded us that in these judgments to come forth against this earth, because he hears the prayers of his suffering saints upon the earth, that when our prayers ascend before his throne, God is going to even vindicate his people in light of any harm and evil that is done to them. That our prayers are part of his decree and that they are the means by which he accomplishes his ends. And even when Christians suffer death for what they believe, John reminds us that they're not gone, but that they live to reign with Christ during the millennium, the time between Jesus' first and second coming. And so in a very real sense, you're a Christian. We cannot be defeated. Even if God calls us to suffer for Christ's sake, even if we have to suffer all the way to the point of death, those who are able to harm the body can't undo what God has done for us in Christ with the gift of salvation. 
So there are a number of texts elsewhere in the New Testament which speak of the same matters in ways we're more used to considering rather than the type of language of like eating a scroll and having to be sweet in my mouth and bitter in my stomach. I mean, that apocalyptic type of literature that is takes some work to understand properly. And so what I mean to say then is that John, with this revelation and his apocalyptic style, is in step with what the other New Testament authors say in just a more familiar genre of literature. Uh, the Apostle Peter speaks of this matter in his second epistle when he writes in chapter 2, verse 4 through 9. He says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as a righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. I'm looking forward to getting to that passage in, on Sunday. Um, but for now, in other words, just because the world hates us and hates our God and hates his gospel, we needn't be paralyzed by that fact or hide our light under a basket. Because the very thing that the enemies of God hate is the means by which he softens the rebel's heart and grants salvation and mercy abundantly and grace overflowing. Heralding the good news can get us in hot water with the world. It will, that is. But God knows how to rescue the godly from trials, even if it is deemed that we're martyred for the sake of, gospel, for the sake of the gospel in Christ. Then we live and reign with Christ in this period. And so even that is a form of being rescued from our trials. Even death for Christ can be a form of rescue in the gospel. Paul also speaks of the same struggle in Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, when he describes the Christian life in terms of proclaiming the gospel and the power of prayer. You're familiar with this, per this verse, I'm sure, or passage. Uh, verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spir spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in their evil day. And having done all, stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith that you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So don't forget, brothers and sisters, being united to Christ also means that we are aware of the reality that we are in a spiritual war. And we've been equipped to conduct war with battle armor and weapons for it as well from God. But even greater than that is the knowledge that we are gods, that we have nearness to him even while we endure through this great tribulation, even while we deal with the spiritual warfare that is before us. And so as the overlapping series of judgments are brought against the earth in the days of this tribulation, God's people are to be about the business of preaching the law and the gospel and praying that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God not only knows how to protect those who are his, 
He has given us the weapons that we need to face the devil and all those allied with him, namely his law and gospel along with prayer. If you remember back to our series in Ephesians, which I know maybe some of you weren't here for that, um, I labored to make the point that each piece of the spiritual armor was relating to and pointing to the gospel. That, that is what we have. That is a powerful weapon. And so in Revelation 10, John reminds us of the hope we have as Christians. Even while the nations rage, even while Satan and his allies seek to harm us, the mighty angel with the scroll reminds us that not only does God protect us during this time of tribulation, but he also equips us to do battle. He has given to us his gospel, which John says it tastes as sweet as honey. For in Jesus Christ, God... Why is it sweet as honey? Think about that. What is that capturing? In Christ, God will never count our sins against us. And in Jesus Christ, God has sealed us as his own, ensuring that we will never fear his wrath. He, we have peace with God now because of that sweet message that is the gospel. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the ways in which you provide for your church, Lord, knowing that this world often seems crazy, and from our vantage point, it seems out of control. Uh, we know certainly that the evil one and those who love evil like anarchy. They like a lack of control. But it is a great encouragement to us to know that all things are, in, in fact, under control, for you are sovereign, and your providential will is being played out. And so we ask that you would increase our faith and give us strength to glorify you and honor you as we go through this life. And we pray, Lord, that you would equip us with the tools that we need uh, to exalt Christ, for he is worthy of all praise and glory. And we know that you'll do it for his sake, for he is your beloved son and our beloved savior. And we pray this all in his name, Jesus. Amen. All right, guys, any um, questions or anything I could do to try to Make something clear that wasn't. At one time you said something about the don't worry because we are gods. Mm -hmm. Oh, we are owned by God. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I think I see what you're saying there. Yeah, we are not gods. We are people, but we are gods in in a possessive sense. (laughs) I'm going to. Tear my giant sweater down. I'm like, no. I'm not going to be like a, a Herod moment where I get eaten by worms. No, no, no. Not gods. <laughs> Anything else, guys? So, if nothing else, um, next week we'll look at the beginning of Revelation chapter 11, which is really interesting where it talks about those two witnesses. Which, you know, if you've seen the Left Behind movies and stuff. And by the way, there's a new Left Behind movie coming out. Maybe we'll watch that just to see what premillennial dispensationalism and how kind of goofy it is and how it kind of really messes with the hope that we're given when we approach this book through an all-millennial hermeneutic. Are so, popcorn when you watch it? Like an sure. Are you providing the popcorn? Is Kevin Sorbo... Steve could bring me a adult beverage. Yeah, uh, it's going to be Sorbo. Kurt oh, Cameron is not in there. For adults. Hey, happy birthday to you tomorrow, yes? Yeah. You're not an adult yet, though. Christian, the, be- the bedroom is made out of All right, guys, that it? Good, good. Yep. Stop at the recording.